Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along today. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, and incredible guests lined up with us for this episode. Uh, he's been involved in some of the most significant terrorism investigations in U.S. history, and that's only part of a career that also includes being a federal agent, author, consultant, and speaker. We're going to go in-depth on all of that in just a moment. But first, got to bring in our host. The guy navigating the conversation today is a man who somehow finds time to host this here podcast during those rare moments when he's not hopping on a flight or making appearances at conferences. I think he's been at two conferences already this week. Uh, that is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? I'll be honest with you. I'm dragging a little bit today. This is uh, day 12 in a row. Uh, I don't know how you do it. No, well, my body's asking me why I'm doing it, but hey, you know, it's all good things because when we go to these conferences, we get to meet some incredible people and that's what makes this job really meaningful. Yeah. I'm going to geek out again here. As you know, I'm a big reader and uh, our, our guest today is an author and his book is fantastic and we'll talk about that in today's show. Have you ever met somebody that when you talk to them, it's just like, Son of a gun! This guy's smart. Yeah. Hey, have you ever met anybody like that? And I know, yes. I know, you haven't met anybody that on this podcast that talks on the podcast, you know, with you. That's what this guest. When I was able to meet him and talk to him on the phone, I was just blown away by his insight, by his dedication to to our profession, but also to his dedication to human beings. We're going to find out more about that. What can you tell us about our guest today? Well, our guest today has spent more than 30 years in the national security arena, including as a senior executive with the Department of Homeland Security, Deputy Assistant Director of the NCIS, and Deputy Commander of the Department of Defense Criminal Investigation Task Force. He's investigated some of the most significant terrorist operations in U.S. history, including the first bombing of the World Trade Center and the 2000 attack on the USS Cole. He's the author of the 2017 book, Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA, Pentagon, and U.S. government conspired to torture. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for you. It is our honor to welcome Mark Fallon to Between the Lines. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me on the show with you guys. And uh, Mike, thanks for that uh, kind introduction. I thought you had a different guest when you talked about the intelligence of, uh, <laughs> of the person you're interviewing. Uh, I'm not sure how smart I am. I just have a lot of experience. But you know what, though? Smart people take that experience and they put it to work. And that's one of the things that you've done. But I do mean it, Mark. It's always a pleasure to be able to talk to you. We'll start our conversation off the way we start most of our conversations off here. How did you come about to be in the law enforcement profession? Uh, well, my father was a detective when I grew up. He was the commander of the Detector Bureau in Harrison, New Jersey, town between uh, Newark and Jersey City, uh, right on the PATH train line into New York City. Uh, and my uh, grandfather was a uh, police uh, commissioner, was a councilman and police commissioner. And so a family of law enforcement. My nephew is a detective in Bernard's Township, uh, New Jersey. And so uh, I just thought that that's what we were supposed to do. It's all I ever wanted wanted to do as a kid growing up. There were cops and robbers. I was the cop. And uh, it, it was for me, it was actually a calling. And I was very fortunate in some of the career choices that I had made for me, uh, particularly with the NCIS, having spent 27 of my 31 years with the federal government with NCIS. There was not a better fit for me uh, than that particular job. 
It's interesting to me that you, you refer to this as a calling because that seems to be a recurring theme with our guests. Would you agree with me that people that see it as a calling, they look at it differently and they perform differently than someone who just sees it as a job or even as a career? Yeah, I, I certainly think so. In my career, I've seen people from all walks of life in CIS. Our, our motto was we, we were looking for people with backgrounds from anthropology to zoology. We could train them how to do the job. But the ones that I saw that excelled were the ones that it, it was it was a calling. It was a fit for them. It was what they, they had a, a passion, a desire to do it. For me, you know, when I was the duty agent as a young agent, I wanted that call. You know, that two in the morning call where you're going to go out and you're going to go help somebody or you're going to go uh, deal with a situation. I I didn't shirk it. I welcomed it because I I was amazed that I was drawing a salary uh, for doing something that I genuinely just love to do. On the uniform side of things, when I first started, you know, you'd get to work early and you'd put the uniform early uh, just in case a call came in where they needed help. And then when the ship was over, you'd stick around just a little bit with the uniform on because you didn't want to miss the good one. That's right. I'll be honest with you, man. I miss those days. But let's talk. What was your first law enforcement job then? Where, where, where did you make your entry into the, the profession? Yeah, as a, uh, I had two years at college. I went to Roger Williams College up in uh, uh, Bristol, Rhode Island. And after two years, I thought, well, let me, uh, let, let me get out into the workforce. College was expensive, didn't have a lot of money, had a lot of loans, and got a, a job as a police constable in Old Line, Connecticut, a beach town. And it was a, a position where you come on in the summer, and then they would generally uh, oftentimes offer you to stay on and become a, a full-time police officer there. What I discovered was uh, I really didn't think uniform was a good fit for me. <laughs> I always thought of, you know, my father was a detective, was always in plain clothes. I really growing up never saw him in a uniform. I saw pictures of him in a uniform when he became the uh, deputy chief and acting chief of police. I saw him in a uniform later on. Uh, growing up, he was always, you know, a, a detective in plain clothes. So I, I didn't, the uniform job wasn't a good fit for me, I did think. And it really helped me think that, you know, to go to the investigative level, which I really wanted to, and to be, if I couldn't be with the New York City Police Department, uh, then I wanted to be a federal agent. Growing up, I thought NYPD would be a, a great job. My father didn't think it would be a great job. He thought I should go to the Port Authority Police because he uh, thought that they had uh, they had a great salary and he worked with them because the PATH trains came through Harrison and he thought that they had you know positions uh, you know at airports and ports and and other things and and thought that that was if you wanted to do uniform patrol he thought that that was a uh, a worthwhile department but i really in college thought being a federal agent i had a an instructor who was a federal magistrate uh, judge hagopian who just passed away a few years back who kind of mentored me and and really had told me that convinced me to go into the marshal service then. So I made the decision to go back and complete my degree. And then I graduated in 1978 uh, from Roger Williams. And then in uh, 1979, I was appointed as a deputy U.S. Marshal in Newark, New Jersey, which was just the uh, federal courthouse in Newark, which was just a few miles from, uh, from where I grew up in Harrison, right, right down the street almost. Now, U.S. Marshals, that can be an exciting career, but you didn't stick around there. What, what caused the shift there? 
Yeah, uh, good, good organization. I enjoyed being a deputy marshal, but a lot less investigative work, a lot of enforcement of work. And so fugitives were great, that type of work, but somebody has to go pick up the prisoners every morning. And for us, the courthouse was in Newark. Our prisoners were mostly kept at the MCC Metropolitan Correction Center in Manhattan, New York City. And so if you had the prisoner run, you got to work early in the morning, you hopped in the prisoner van, you drove through traffic in the Holland Tunnel into New York City, you picked up your prisoners, you drove back through the Holland Tunnel to the courthouse, sat in the bullpen sometimes with the prisoners through the day, and then at night you'd go back through the Holland Tunnel, drop them off. I thought my calling was broader than that, and, and, and you know, I, I learned a lot. You know, in the, there are marshals in the courtroom. During those proceedings, I learned a, a lot about criminal trials and processes. I was involved with some witness protection work and other things. And so it was a great job and I enjoyed it thoroughly, but it was clear to me that my calling was more of an investigator, more, I don't want to say the whodunit piece, but you know that's the, the, the nice part about NCIS. It's kind of a hybrid organization that offers you the ability to work counterintelligence, counterterrorism, criminal investigations. And so I was kind of recruited into NCIS. I was working the Marshal Service in Newark, New Jersey is on the fifth floor of the U.S. Courthouse. At least it was uh, back in the day when I was there. I don't know if it's still there. I assume it is. Uh, but half of the top deck now I call it being with NCIS, the top floor of the courthouse, <laughs> was uh, the U.S. Marshals, and the other half were the postal inspectors. And we had worked quite a bit in the Marshal Service with postal inspectors on, on surveillances and joint fugitive operations. They uh, Postal inspectors do a lot of great work, uh, theft of the mail and other things. I was talking to one of the postal inspectors about possibly shifting over to the postal inspectors because they had more of an investigative mission. And uh, the postal inspector was a former NCIS agent, and we were called NIS at the time, and his spouse did not want to move, and NCIS requires moves. And so he left the organization, and he told me he regretted it. While he liked being a postal inspector, that the career path of NIS was really so rewarding to him. And I had no military background. I didn't know what the organization was, but he made a few calls and set up an interview with me with the special agent in charge of the NIS office in Brooklyn, New York, the New York resident agency. And the rest is history. After two years in the Marshal Service in 1981, I was appointed uh, as an NCIS special agent and uh, did that up uh, through for 27, 27 years around the world. I think it's interesting. We, we had a former guest on uh, that talked about how he got involved in terrorism related investigations. Most of the world, when they think about terrorism related investigations, they, they think that they started post 9-11. And certainly they kicked in high gear then. But your experience with counterterrorism started much earlier. What was the first significant terrorism investigation that you became involved with? The first and most significant at the time was called Operation Terstop, Stop Terrorism. Uh, it was a, uh, a joint operation with the FBI MYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York City. And um, what happened at the time, I was the, when I first got to the NCIS office in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I was the assistant special agent in charge for criminal investigations and counterintelligence. 
And then later I became the agent in charge of that office. But at the time, we had a um, NCIS asset, a counterintelligence asset, um, law enforcement might call it an informant, uh, but a cooperating witness, someone who was on our books, who was providing uh, and counterintelligence information of interest to the Department of the Navy. And he uh, had some information about a group, uh, and this was, we're talking uh, right now uh, in the early 90s, a group in New York City who was looking for certain uh, weapons training. And we would help other agencies make cases with our informant. His name is no longer classified as a, uh, a person named Garrett Wilson, and I'll get to why he's, he's in the public domain now. Garrett would find people who were looking to illegally export night vision goggles. And so we would work the U.S. Customs Service and we would work sting operations to try to interdict illegal exports of technology out of the United States. So things like that. And so Garrett uh, told us that there was a, uh, a group in New York City who happened to be uh, Muslims who were looking for training, uh, military grade type urban assault training. And, and our asset was former uh, special forces type and, and could provide that type of tactical training. We sent out an intelligence report then disseminated widely, and the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York City picked up on it and said, we're looking at a group, and this is, this is before the first World Trade Center bombing, we're looking at a group up here, there may be some overlap, can we go down and talk to you? They had a person in prison in New York City named El Said Nasser, who was in prison for killing a Jewish rabbi in New York City, Rabbi Meyer Kahani. And he was, he was actually not guilty of the killing, but guilty of possessing the weapon that killed the rabbi, the way the juries worked. They, 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 they didn't come back uh, with a guilty verdict on the murder, but they came back on the guilty verdict of holding the weapon when the bullet came out of the, the barrel of the weapon. They, they couldn't establish in court that uh, it actually hit him. But anyway, he was in jail. And so when we looked at this uh, type of training, uh, some of the speculation by the uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force was that maybe they're trying to break him out of prison. You, you hypothesize, what, what could they want this for? You're trying to determine to get ahead of this group. Well, what we subsequently found out is we infiltrated the group, did a joint operation, uh, and we found out that the blind Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who had been the spiritual advisor to someone I had never heard of before named Osama bin Laden, um, and prior to that was uh, involved with the Egyptian Islamic Jihad in Egypt, had been jailed uh, after Amar Sadat was assassinated in Egypt, uh, was jailed in the Citadel prison in Egypt in conjunction with that assassination of uh, the head of state of Egypt. And he was actually imprisoned uh, along with Ayman al-Zawahiri, who later uh, joined forces with bin Laden to form the base, Al-Qaeda. We didn't know this at the time, uh, we knew that we had uh, an imam in Jersey City, New Jersey, where I was born, residing there, who was sanctioning, giving a, a fatwa that actually kind of gave legal cover, for lack of a better term, uh, for people to attack civilians. Our asset, Garrett, wound up uh, selling to this group of uh, terrorists who were later convicted in federal court in the Southern District of uh, New York in Manhattan, 
for an attempted. They were they were going to try to assassinate Amor Sadat's successor, Hosni Mubarak, when he visited the United Nations in New York City. They wanted to, with a machine gun, shoot the guards at the federal building where the FBI was located uh, and drive a truck into the basement. The guards were at the uh, at the entranceway and blow up the, that, uh, blow up the Holland Lincoln tunnels. Uh, they had a sophisticated plot and uh, we were able to interdict them prior to that, any of those, uh, it was called the Landmarks Operation. And he, the blind shake and 10 of his uh, conspirators were convicted in federal district court in New York City. And uh, the blind shake died just maybe about a year and a half ago in Buckner, North Carolina, in, in the federal facility. He got a life in prison, and they all got uh, you know life type terms in prison. Uh, but Garrett uh, testified against uh, the blind shake. He sold the uh, remote control igniters, cannon fuses, and other things that they were going to use in this plot. So we we're able to interdict that. At the same time that we had that cell and we're interdicting that operation, another cell uh, under the blind shake drove a rider truck into the basement uh, of the World Trade Center and a bomb exploded there and killed a, a dozen or so people and, and injured uh, you know, thousands uh, with that. But it didn't, did not topple the tower. And Garrett was able to help piece together uh, who those people were involved, went through mugshot books and was able to identify because he, he, had, he had infiltrated the group. Uh, I spent a lot of time on surveillances outside the al Refugee Center uh, up in Brooklyn and the uh, different mosques up there that uh, this terrorist cell was working out of. And so very unusual experience for an NCIS agent to be involved in that because certainly the premier organization for counterterrorism in the United States is the FBI. But the fact that we had this asset that we were able to penetrate, it uh, brought me into this world of high-end type counterterrorism investigations. And, and Garrett, after he testified, went in the Federal Witness Protection Program and subsequently died of natural causes uh, in the program. But his, his, he was unmasked. Um, that's why I can talk about him as a counterintelligence asset because it was declassified so that he could testify at trial. And so that really brought me into uh, the world of you know top tier uh, terrorism investigations with the terror stop, which, which really showed how effective law enforcement can be utilizing our methodologies, infiltrating, using assets. Uh, and there were other assets we used as well uh, that testified against uh, the blind shake and, uh, and the conspirators in that case. But it really showed how effective our processes would be. And at the time, we really had a very formidable task force in the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York City because they had one squad up there it was called the I-49 squad at the time, that worked all of the bin Laden cases. And so I was able to learn from who I considered some of the best in the business because they had been working against this type of target uh, for years. And so I was working with you know the elite squad in the FBI, which was the only squad that was working any bin Laden cases. Uh, the way it worked in the federal government at the time was any, you know, we called them UBL, any UBL cases were going to be tried in the Southern District of New York because you you, get, you develop this expertise when you work these cases, right? This talked about, I'm not that smart, I'm just highly experienced. Well, so I had a lot of experience. And so the Southern District of New York had a lot of experience in prosecuting these type of cases. So if it was a UBL case, 
it would be tried in Southern District and it'd be worked by the I-49 squad. If it was a non-UBL case, it would revert back to the Washington Field Office of the FBI and uh, the Eastern District of Virginia. They would usually be brought to trial in the DC metropolitan area. Uh, it was called the Radical Fundamentalist group or units uh, operated there. So you had these two different entities where the DC office of the FBI had a lot of experience with non-Bin Laden cases, but anything Bin Laden related, uh, the resident experience was really uh, in New York City. And so I was able to work with them. And, and it really paid dividends later on when the USS Cole was attacked uh, in 2000, because when I became the NCS commander of the task force working the case, I was working with the same people I'd worked with on the Turstop case, many of them. So the same squad from the FBI got involved, and so we were friends, uh, we kept in touch, and so uh, it really worked out very nicely for me and for NCIS to be able to work all those cases jointly. And so when the call was attacked, that again became a joint investigation between NCIS and the FBI to try to investigate the attackers. And then, of course, NCIS has their own counterintelligence responsibilities to collect intelligence as well, counterintelligence information. And so we had a dual mission in Yemen where we're conducting a criminal investigation, but we're also conducting counterintelligence force protection operations to get threat information to protect the fleet. One of the principal jobs of NCIS is they're guardians of the warfighter. Right. And so the mission of NCIS is to conduct criminal investigations, counterintelligence and counterterrorism operations of matters of interest to the Department of the Navy so that our military can effectively function to protect our national security. You know, if a terrorist is going to attack, it's going to disrupt military operations. Right. If someone from the military is recruited. Uh, into a cell or into for a hostile intelligence service, foreign intelligence service, it's going to disrupt military operations. Sailors involved with drug activity, drug dealers targeting the military, it's going to. So, a, a very small organization, NCIS, with an incredibly broad and really elite mission to as guardians of the warfighter. I think uh, one of the things you talked about there that, that I find fascinating, uh, well, number one, you accomplished your mission of getting into the investigative side of things, what you were looking for. But there's a complexity that comes with these types of investigations that if you've had somebody in place for a while, you know the players. When I was assigned to DEA in my career, uh, we had a, an investigator from the IRS in our group. And he had been in Detroit for so long when a name would come up, he goes, okay, just so you know, he used to work for this person over here. This was the role. And all those things go to assist the investigation. So you started an investigation that wasn't related to the World Trade Center, but then it found a nexus to it. And then you, you find further nexus as you continue going on, because the coal, that's, that's several years after that first World Trade Center attack, yet there are still connections going on there. How was it for you as an investigator working on foreign soil conducting those types of investigations yeah the, uh, the, you know again the the value that ncs brings to the table for the military is really the uh, the capability to be adaptive be innovative you know in in the world of course when i hired out with ncs we only had 800 special agents 850 special agents globally um, and, and so, you know, they talk about the Texas Rangers, one riot, one ranger. 
Well, you know, one aircraft carrier battle group, one NCIS agent, right? And and so you learn how to operate other countries with other agencies. I I, I lived in the Philippines. I, I worked a lot of undercover operations in my career through Southeast Asia. Uh, I've been undercover in Thailand. I've been undercover in Pakistan, um, Philippines. And so what you learn how to do is uh, adapt to this different environment, develop, you, you know, you you survive by your contacts, well, particularly NCIS, because you are oftentimes, I've been undercover in Kenya on an anti-poaching operation, looking at people who were uh, selling elephant tusks and cheetah skins on safari, infiltrating a group there with very little backup, right? And you're, you're working with Kenyan authorities, you have to really think on your feet and really try to determine the best way to accomplish a mission. What's what's the outcome? What's your goal and objective uh, of being there? And, and what benefits does that bring to the Department of the Navy? Because again, your whole goal is to ensure the military readiness, right? And, and so you are part of this larger national security process. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, for me, uh, it's, uh, in, in, I came on with NCS in 1981. By 1983, I had uh, moved to the Philippines. I was transferred to the Philippines. I had never been really outside of the country before, uh, other than a bus trip to Canada with a church group with my grandmother uh, when I was elementary school or a quick drive up to, to Montreal after graduating high school to go to the Playboy Club. You know, I, I used to kid that, uh, you know, I used to think that the West Coast was looking across the Delaware River in Pennsylvania uh, because I, 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 I had never been on a plane. I'd never flown on a plane until I had to go with the Marshal Service to Cleveland, Ohio, to go pick up a bank robber. So uh, I, I really was, you know, this uh, New York metropolitan area, this, you know, this part of New Jersey there, Hudson County, New Jersey, uh, was my stomping grounds. And, you know, the further south I would go was uh, Seaside Heights, New Jersey. You know, really hadn't traveled a lot. And, you know, here I wound up uh, 1983 as a young special agent living in the Philippines. My son was born over there at QB Point Naval Air Station, what we call Jungle General Hospital. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> traveling throughout these uh, countries in Southeast Asia undercover, um, working, you know, if DEA was in the country with them, I've been to Thailand working undercover, infiltrating a, uh, a drug kingpin in, in, in a port that the neighbor would go to and going undercover buying heroin, or I'd be in the Baguio Mountain region of the Philippines uh, buying uh, uh, kilos of marijuana or like I said in Mombasa, Kenya uh, on an anti-poaching operation. And so uh, the ability to operate in these different environments is what is the value that NCS brings to the Navy. When the director of NCS goes to the uh, Navy leadership for the budget for resources, you know, they're not looking for a weapon system. They're not looking for Tomahawk missiles. Uh, what, what they're investing in is the person, the individual, right? So that's the, what NCIS gives the Navy is a person that you could, something can blow up in the world. You could send that person there and have some degree of confidence that that person will kind of be able to piece it together. We used to, you know, call ourselves the MacGyvers of law enforcement, 
right? The, the FBI would come in with a plane load of 100 people. You know, NCS would send one person and he'd, you know, get the get the natives together. They'd be sharpening popsicle sticks and taking them to the end of, uh, uh, you know, sticks. You know, it, it was make do, you know, do the best you can with whatever the situation you're in and, and hope for a good outcome. And so, uh, as I said, for me, I was just very fortunate to have that type of background, to be able to have worked with the uh, JTTF in New York in the 90s to prepare me to be the commander of the Coal Task Force in 2000, which helped prepare me to be the government's chief investigator for Al-Qaeda for trials for a military commission after 9-11. And so, uh, you know, the trajectory of my career just uh, seemed to give me these foundational building blocks that I was able to jump off of and leap up and try to grab on the next ring and uh, go into a situation that in each of those situations was never totally prepared, but was able to adapt and adjust and do the best I could with the resources I had. But, but doing so, utilizing the experiences of my past to help me design uh, strategies to try to uh, accomplish the mission that I was given. Okay, and so I want to kind of transition here because after 9-11, okay, uh, obviously counterterrorism activity, it kicks into high gear, but what you became involved in really had tremendous impact on what you're doing now. I say retirement, but you and I both know you ain't really retired, right? But but we'll say post-government retirement. What happened that really started to drive you. I mean, because you, you, you can talk about you know the stuff that you've you've researched, the, the research you've been involved in. But what was it that started to drive you that hey, you know what? There's got to be a better way. Of course, after nine eleven, you know the the government made a lot of decisions, and you know, in my uh, opinion, uh, many of them were based on fear, uh, ignorance, and arrogance, right? And, and so some of those decisions we still live with today and and uh, and I'll, I'll talk about those because it it's what has put me on my current trajectory in the course that i'm on after september 11th president bush uh, made some decisions that we're still living with so on september 17th he issued a memorandum of notification uh, some people call it a finding it's a covert finding that no one was ever supposed to find out about uh, that gave the cia the authority to conduct what became known as the RDI program, Rendition, Detention, and Interrogation Program. None of those things were core competencies of the CIA. By November of 2001, uh, the president issued a military order that said that the Secretary of Defense had the authority to try before military commissions this new kind of process anyone who is or was a member of Al-Qaeda, anyone who aided, abetted, or knowingly harbored the Al-Qaeda terrorist network. And, and the president had said that the federal court system was impracticable as a venue for bringing terrorists to justice. None of those things were true. The federal court system was very effective. I had been involved in very effective cases in the past. If we really look back, we would have seen that the federal courts was a, a good process. So uh, the president made a decision to utilize Article II courts, his Article II authority to run the military, rather his Article III courts. The federal court system is Article III of the Constitution, right? And, and so the president as commander-in-chief of the military and president of the United States made a decision. 
And so that decision, that military order, went to the Secretary of Defense. The Secretary of Defense looked at who within the Department of Defense was the executive agency for war crimes because these were considered uh, crime, uh, war crimes, uh, terrorist acts or war crimes. And so went to the Secretary of the Army and said, you're the executive agency for war crimes. You, you have this mission now to investigate uh, this Al-Qaeda network for these trials. He went to the commanding general of Army CID, Criminal Investigations Division Command of the Army, who was the component of the army responsible for criminal investigations, uh, General Don Ryder, and gave him the mission. And General Ryder, I had just briefed him probably a month before that uh, on the USS Cole, lessons learned from the USS Cole uh, attack was when I was the chief of counterintelligence operations for NCIS and the commander of the Cole Task Force. And so General Ryder called up the director of NCIS, Dave Brandt, and the commander of Air Force OSI, uh, General Eric Patterson, and basically said, I I'm not equipped to do this mission. I have this new mission. Uh, to do it, we need to do it jointly. You know, can we form a joint task force? And uh, I was sent down to help General Ryder set up this new task force to investigate the Al-Qaeda terrorist network for trials for military commission. And so I thought that was a highly unwise decision, right? I thought it was unwise not to utilize the FBI because of their resident experience, uh, the data they already collected, uh, their size, their resources, their capabilities. I thought this mission should have gone to the FBI. Uh, I thought, you know, the, certainly the federal district courts, uh, particularly the Southern District of New York, would have been a, a, a great venue for these because we knew they were connected in Laden. However, it was my job to follow a lawful order. That order from the president, while I thought it was unwise, was lawful. Right? He's the president of the United States. He has made a decision. And so General Ryder then asked me to stay on and be the chief operating officer, the special agent charge, chief investigator, deputy commander of this newly formed task force. Uh, with global uh, responsibilities to investigate the Al-Qaeda terrorist network for these trials for military commission. And so that really became the professional challenge of my life was, you know, how do you design a task force to do this? You know, to combine, you know, Army, CID had no counterintelligence capabilities, had not really worked terrorist cases in the past. OSI had some experience with uh, Cobar Towers. Uh, and some other, and they have, like NCIS, have dual mission, criminal investigation, counterintelligence, so are similar to NCIS, more so than Army CID was at the time. Now Army CID is evolving. They're civilianizing. They now have a civilian director, a former NCIS agent, so they're trying to kind of uh, mimic or at least replicate uh, a model closer to the NCIS model now. Th this put me in charge of you know, task force, and you know, frankly, I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. While I thought it was an unwise decision, uh, I frankly thought if the mission had to go uh, to the Department of Defense, and I, I say this, I don't say this with any conceit. Uh, hopefully, it comes across with some humility. But I, I thought that if it had to go to the Department of Defense, at least I had this experience base that I was the right guy for the job. Because, you know, the coal had given me depth of experience, the turf stop, the First World Trade Center. Uh, I mean, so at, at least I felt that, you know, having NCIS and OSI involved with CID 
we would have a better chance uh, of making this new process work. I was actually had been selected to be the NCS Deputy Assistant Director for Mission Support, so I would have had all undercover operations under me and and all these other things. So uh, you know, I, I gave up that position to be detailed to Army CID for two and a half years, working directly for the Office of Secretary of Defense to be in charge of this investigations for military commissions. During that process, Mike, what happened was. Uh, you had this family of interrogational abuses up to and including torture that had been implemented by the CIA at black sites that was about to migrate to the Department of Defense at Guantanamo. And so I felt that I had a professional responsibility to try to not allow that to happen. Uh, it was clear to me that, you know, it's known as the EIT program, uh, a term made up by the CIA. They called it enhanced interrogation techniques, but it was really just EIT stood for an excuse to inflict torture. It, it was just the systematic uh, degradation and the breaking down of uh, the human being in, in an effort to get them to be compliant, to comply to your wishes and to tell you what you want to know not designed to tell you the truth or to give you accurate reliable information. When I saw that migration uh, of this malignancy, this cancer, that had already affected the CIA, was going to come into Guantanamo, and this was in uh, 2003, uh, September, October, November 2003, when we had identified Mohammed Al-Qahtani, who was supposed to be, would have been, likely one of the 20th hijackers of the September 11th uh, attacks and had he gotten the country, uh, but he didn't. And so I wound up taking a stance trying to prevent the migration of the torture program from the CIA to the Department of Defense, because even though the CIA was telling us they were authorized to do these things, the readout uh, that I had and my lawyers had was that that was highly unlikely. These were uh, violations of US law, all right? They are violations of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. They are violations of international law. There was no way in the world that I thought uh, the military particularly. Now, uh, I can say that I really wasn't shocked that the CIA would resort to these methods because historically they had in the past. If you've ever heard of MK Ultra, uh, this research program that they did on, on I, I hate to use the term, the Manchurian candidate stuff, but it, but it really is uh, a process that it, they called it debility, dependency, and dread to totally break down a person so that they would be compliant to your wishes. So if you wanted to make them an asset, now you could rebuild them now and you've broken them down to nothing. And so now you're, you're going to rebuild them into to somebody who would do your, your bidding. And, and the Kubark counterintelligence manual, if you've ever heard of Kubark, and they did this for years. And every time the CIA did this, they would wind up killing somebody. Congress would get involved. They promised not to do it again. No one would be held accountable. The CIA lies for a living. They do it again, uh, and, and, and we get into the cycle. And so, at one point, 
they decided that the word interrogation was too dirty a word in the CIA, so we can't call it the interrogation, we're going to call it human resource exploitation. And so these programs migrated to South America, and they were part of these things that these brutal regimes, but it was part of this global process of uh, subjecting human beings to very harsh, degrading, and torturous uh, conditions. And, and that program got to the Department of Defense. It migrated there. A, a general named Jeff Miller was sent to Gitmo to implement the program. He later went to Abu Ghraib. Gitmoized Abu Ghraib, uh, and we started doing this prisoner degradation, not, not just the black sites now, as part of special operating procedures within the Department of Defense, uh, black sites and dark prisons in Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and, and we can see what happened in those countries, right? In those countries that had claimed that we'd be treated as liberators, and we came in and we were as brutal or more brutal than the regimes that they were already living in. And, and so we saw, you know, frankly, how we've lost those wars in those countries. And, you know, it, it's shameful uh, to see what's happened. But what put me on this trajectory, Mike, uh, post-retirement was really the fact that when I was asked to be the chair of the High Value Detainee Interrogation Group Research Committee, uh, which was a group that was formed after President Obama took office. And he said, We're, we will no longer torture anymore, but we need to know how to obtain information from the greatest threats for national security, and we need to do so through science. Uh, and so we uh, issued an executive order, 13491, that resulted in a, a multi-agency task force that NCS was involved in and the FBI was involved in, the CIA and all agencies were involved in. And they got together and said, uh, what are we going to do in the future to protect our national security? We know this stuff didn't work. We got bad information. We Threat warnings went up. You know, The CIA thought Abu Zubaydah was the number three guy in Al-Qaeda. He wasn't even a member of Al-Qaeda. Um, we brutally tortured him. We tortured other people. We, we committed war crimes. You had CIA officers being arrested on Interpol warrants because there's international jurisdiction for war crimes. And so none of the agencies wanted to go down that road again, including the CIA. They wanted to stay far clear from that. But but they said, we need science. So, so what happened around 2006 was two people who worked for me on my behavioral science consulting team on the Criminal Investigation Task Force, uh, Dr. Nan Robert Fine and Brian Voskul, both formerly with the Secret Service, uh, did a study. It was called Adducing Information. Uh, did this study uh, for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence under President Bush. This is still 2006. And what they determined was that it had been more than 50 years since the U.S. government had done any research into why someone would talk to us. So in law enforcement, what we had been doing for years was really just kind of replicating what we did in the past. We're using our experience and saying, hey, I did this, it worked for me. I'm an instructor now, I'm going to instruct you to do this so it might work for you. But it was not validated by science. It was not evidence-based. And so when I got involved as the chair of the HIG, they created this high value detaining interrogation group, which is a group that had the FBI as the director, uh, the CIA as one deputy director, and the Department of Defense as another deputy director. 
and they commissioned uh, the most robust program of research into interrogation practice uh, that we've ever had. And I was fortunate. I retired from the government in 2010, and I was immediately appointed to be on the HIG Research Committee. The HIG also hired me as a consultant, and I helped them design uh, some of the first training programs for HIG interviewers, interrogators. What I discovered was uh, I was enlightened that there was this now this body of research now that could help validate, at least in my experience, some of the things that I was doing, I learned why they might have been effective. I also learned there were some things that and I learned some new things, right? These are things how I could improve upon my technique, my, my methodologies. And I learned why some of the things that I thought might be working, weren't working, or not because of what I thought of, that was wrong. And I learned there were things I ought to never do again. What it really taught me, Mike, and that's why I got involved in what's called the Mendez Principles on Effective Interviewing and was on their steering committee, was that had I had knowledge of the research, uh, had we had the research available to me in 2002 and 2003, when I was fighting against uh, the migration of this family of interrogational abuses throughout the government, I might have been more persuasive in my argument because at the time, we did not have a robust body of science on it. And the science that we had, I was totally unaware of. And so really, the trajectory of history, right, the arc of history could have changed had this research possibly, had this research been available. So, so the good news is, it's available now, right? We have this tremendous amount of and, and growing body of emerging research on how to effectively obtain accurate, reliable information from the people that we're talking to. And it's contrary to a majority of the training that's currently ongoing within state and local departments within the country in the United States. And, and so what I'm hoping to do is be a catalyst for more enlightenment, to be a catalyst of someone who's been there, who's learned from my mistakes, who's made tremendous mistakes. I, I used to instruct and train that an innocent person wouldn't confess to a crime they didn't commit. I said that because intuitively I believed it. I was wrong. Science has shown us that that is not true. Uh, unfortunately, people are still training that and people still believe that. And particularly in law enforcement, where we have embraced the physical sciences. DNA has revolutionized the way we do crime scenes, right? This physical science of DNA, right. uh, how we collect evidence is much different, things like that. Well, what law enforcement has not embraced yet is the evolution of behavioral science that tells us now we do know the most accurate means of obtaining accurate reliable information is by utilizing uh, these information gathering methodologies that uh, some started in Europe prior to the US, some of the, the, the research that I've read. But really, the, the robust nature of the research was really due to this HIG where the government you know, dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars into how to do this. 
And so while uh, agencies like my former agency, NCIS, now will only teach and use science-based methodologies, and FLETSI, uh, which I used to be the assistant director for training of, now has abandoned their previous training, what they used to call the FISTEP method, and now is teaching evidence-based methodology, science-based methods, for the most part, when I go out and see that these people using uh, methods, uh, these theme-based methods, and these some companies are using and are marketing, that you, you can detect deception through verbal cues or body language, through physical cues, not verbal cues. They're selling junk science. And, and people in law enforcement are latching onto it. The real challenge here, Mike, is that if you use these uh, these confession-driven practices, these confession-driven tactics, the unfortunate part is they are a very effective method of obtaining a confession from a guilty suspect, right? It is effective at that. Unfortunately, it is equally effective in obtaining a confession from an innocent person. And, and so what we're finding is that, and what the research now has shown us is that if you utilize the information gathering methods that are based on science and rapport building, rather than the confession-driven methods, you will get more hacker and liable information. You will get more admissions that if you use the confession-driven, you will get less false information. You, you will get less fabricated information, and you will get more overall information, so more intelligence information. What we're trying to do, and that's why you know Dr. Maria Hartwig and I established Project Lathia at John Jay College of Criminal Justice as a center to bridge the gap between the science and practice of interrogation, is we need to be able to get this science, this emerging body of science, into the hands of practitioners who are open-minded and who are really looking to to really improve their practice. Because Absolutely. you know we go to the range and we try to improve our proficiency with a handgun, right? We practice tactics, we try to get our tactical proficiency up. What we don't do is keep abreast of the emerging science so, so that we continue to hone and improve our interview and interrogation skills, which we're never tested on, right? We're tested on the range to see how we're fishing with a weapon, but who is reviewing our tapes of interrogations to see if we're utilizing sound techniques? Usually when it's reviewed, when there's an issue. By being a dissenting voice, I have to imagine you're getting some pushback, especially early on. What types of arguments are you hearing and how do you deal with that kind of pushback from what you're saying? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the problem is, is that it's cheaper to bring outsource in and, and it is effective, right? So, so it is getting a confession from a guilty or innocent. And what happens with this is you never find out, usually, uh, you don't find out the earlier ways till years later. Right. And what we're finding out now is through DNA, right, we're finding out that we have all these people who've been now legally exonerated. Right. The DNA evidence have substantiated and they've gone to a court and they've been exonerated because the physical evidence of DNA has shown they were not the perpetrator of this rape or they were not that the evidence was not them, that the evidence shows that it was some other person that committed this crime. What was shocking to me was that between one third and one quarter, depends on when you look at the stats, 
of those people that have been exonerated have falsely confessed to crimes they didn't commit. And so the problem with that, other than we've now incarcerated a guilty person in prison for sometimes decades before this comes out, is the perpetrator of that crime is still on the street. They are still preying on the community. They're still committing these crimes. But unlike right, right now we're seeing, right, that, you know, there's a lot of police reform efforts going on because of body cameras. There's an immediate feedback loop, right? People have cell phones on the street. There are dashboard cameras. You know, there are body cameras being worn. And so officers, like we have recently seen in Memphis, there was an immediate feedback loop where they were immediately fired. And there is some now reformation efforts underway in Memphis within that department. How do we improve the practice? How do we stop doing whatever resulted in, in these particular abuses? But those who are affected by those who committed or the investigators who obtained these false confessions, by the time these are out, they're long gone. Right. It doesn't affect their careers. They've moved on. Nothing has happened to them. Th their departments may not may even know about this. You know, now their cities sometimes have millions of dollars of lawsuits and things like that. But, but the people who were involved in these false confessions may not even know that they were involved in that. Right. Because it could be a decade later. If you look no at some of the Exactly. There's no accountability for it. There's no there's no camera in those uh, interrogation rooms. And, and there's a lot of focus now uh, on de-escalation training at the arrest. Right. So, so what if you de-escalate the arrest and then and then you re-escalate in the interrogation room? And, and this and then what I'm talking about is false evidence ploys and other things. We have you on videotape. We know this. Well, what we found is that results in a lot of false confessions because the person who confesses basically thinks that they know they didn't do it and that will eventually come out. And so I'll try to get this person off my back and I'll confess to this and I'll think that it, it, it'll work out and it never does, right? And when they recant, no one believes that they recanted. And there, there's focus on, on just getting the evidence that supports the confession and it goes to court and they get prosecuted. And it's not, like I said, till decades later that, that we're finding out. So the pushback is that these things work, right? And because they do work in getting a confession and because that's the goal. We need to change the mindset. The goal shouldn't ought to be the confession. The goal ought to be getting accurate, reliable information because you're getting a confession from innocent people as well. So you can't have that as a goal, right? The goal should be truth. And when we talk about the restoration of trust with the community, you know, I believe that we ought to be policing with dignity, right? And so how I don't think that this is stagecraft. Right. We don't need trickery and deception in the interrogation room. It's a tradecraft. We need tra we need training. The, the problem is that officers don't have the proper training to have the confidence that if you use these techniques, they will work because they're just not trained in them. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, testified remotely uh, before the Colorado General Assembly, along with the chief uh, executive officer of Wicklander Zulowski, David Thompson, who, who is a, a great advocate of science and is, has evolved away from, they will no longer teach uh, these theme-based approaches they used to teach. They will now, they have now morphed away from that. They, you know, they're teaching effective interviewing. Uh, they're consulting with researchers. Dave is a member of Project Lathia. Uh, I did a podcast with him for Wicklander Zulowski on the Mendes Principles. Uh, not too long ago. And so what, what we have to have 
is the training getting into the hands of those officers because I heard of a chief of police in Colorado. I was testifying with Dave and others that police should not lie to juveniles in an interrogation because juveniles particularly are, are very vulnerable, right? And, and so police, we should be uh, policing with virtue, right? right? We need to restore virtue in policing again. We shouldn't be the bad guy. Right. But in the communities we are policing, oftentimes we are looked at as that way. They say the police coming and, you know, we're highly militarized. We're all now in battle rattle with body armor and, you know, all these different weapon systems. Right. We're equipped with tasers and batons and chemical sprays and different sorts of weapons and other things. You know, we're looked at differently in the communities, uh, you know, in some of the communities that we're policing in. Um, and, and so this this police chief testified that, yeah, you know, I had this juvenile in there and, and I used a false evidence ploy and I told him that, you know, we had a videotape of him committing the act and he confessed and we solved the case because that was my only, you know, that's what I had to do to solve the case. Well, no, that's not what you had to do. The science shows that, you know, if you would use the effective, you know, the science-based methods, they would be more effective than what you did. And you did get your confession, but you may not know for years whether that was a true confession or not. And, and say that you keep using these false evidence ploys and you're using them with the innocent as well as the guilty. What does that say about the trust that we're trying to restore with police? If these people go back into their community and say, the cops are lying to me. You know, and, and this is, you know, uh, you know, on a global scale, you know, to you know, take this up to the you know, 50,000 foot level. You know, this is what happened in the global war on terror. You know, when we evaded Iraq and said there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq, there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq then. Right. And you know who know there was no Al Qaeda in Iraq? Al Qaeda. Right. And, and so we diminished our credibility within those who were deciding whether to counterterrorism strategy ought to be to get less people that want to kill you. Right. You want to strategy. You, you don't want to populate people that, that don't like you. <laughs> right. And, and so why would we want to police in the interrogation room where we are demeaning the people we're talking to? utilizing deceptive practices that make us look like buffoons sometimes. And that's a good recruitment tactic for Al-Qaeda, too. That you're lying to us. You know? Exactly. And, and what about the communities? Right. We're trying to restore trust in communities we police in. We need to be policing with virtue. We need to be back. You know, as I said at the beginning, Mike, this was a calling for me. Right. I want to be the good guy. I was the cop, not the robber. You know, and, and that's how I view, you know, my brothers and sisters uh, in this profession. It's a profession of honor and it's a profession of dignity. But we need we need to restore that within the practice. And, and, and so I'm very passionate about this because it troubles me to see, you know, we're having a problem with the recruiting and retention of officers right now. Uh, and we're in these challenges where we need to be trusted in the communities that we operate in. And to do that, we need to restore of virtue and policing. And part of that is utilizing science because the science-based methods are the more humane ones and are the ones that, by the way, not only are the most, you know, the, there's a, a technique that uh, uh, Maria Hartwig was involved in, in the research of called the suit technique, strategic use of evidence. Well, what we found and what the research shows is that not only is an exceptional method uh, to detect deception and to uh, elicit uh, admissions from a guilty suspect, it's also an excellent methodology to determine and exonerate the innocent suspects.
right? And, and that's what we ought to be doing. When I was uh, running the task force, uh, it's at a point at Guantanamo alone, and I had people in Iraq and Afghanistan, Guantanamo it wasn't just Guantanamo, we had a global task force, but at Guantanamo, we're at, I guess, the peak of the population, we probably had almost 800 people in there, 780, I think was the number usually quoted. But I had more investigators doing interviews and interrogations to try to determine innocence, to exonerate, to get people out of Gitmo, than I had working cases on people who were bringing them for trial because there weren't that many people at Gitmo who were involved in terrorism. And so the Pentagon was saying, your interrogation techniques uh, aren't effective because you're not finding terrorists. Yes, they are effective because I'm not finding terrorists because they are not terrorists. You know, it's about finding the truth so you can make reliable decisions. And so then this is this shift of mindset. The best interrogation isn't the one that gets the confession. The best interrogation is the one that gets the truth. And that's what and that's what we Absolutely. need to. And that's the, what the mindset needs to shift to. Hey, Brent, I've got to tell you a quick story here. One of the first times I met with Mark, I was I was that guy that was kind of resisting what he said. And uh, and I was talking to him like, hey, you know what, Mark, as long as we get the information, me as an American citizen, I think I can live with it as long as it saves lives, as long as it saves you know American lives. And, and Mark mm-hmm. kind of approached it like a teacher talking to the, you know, the kid in the class that, that last on the on the depth chart. And he was very <laughs> patient with me. And he says, Mike, let, let, let's take the human rights aspect aside. You know, set that aside for a second. Think it from a military perspective. Think of the amount of resources that are dedicated following up on false information. And when we have these resources running down this false information that has been elicited by these means, that means that we have fewer resources to dedicate to the true threats. So if you want to talk about saving lives, let's get credible information from the people. And that's what the science says. This way of doing it is the best way. I, I sat back down in my chair and said, okay. <laughs> and then we had right. another drink. <laughs> yes, we did. It's, it's probably a hard sell to a lot of people because you're you really do have to change your mindset. And that doesn't happen overnight. Correct. Absolutely. And, and then here's another thing. And, and Mark has said it several times in his talk. Let's bring it to the police level. The goal of an investigation should be to find the truth. Okay, but in too many organizations and too many investigation sections, the measure of success is a thing called a clearance rate. A crime is committed. Were we able to clear it by making an arrest, charging the person, that type of thing? If that's the measure, then we really don't care if it's a false confession as long as we can clear that particular crime. You know, it's just like in a prosecutor's office. The measure of success is the conviction rate. And again, it should be about convicting the guilty. It really is going to require a shift in the mindset, a shift in the perspective, a shift in the mission of criminal justice agencies in America for this to take place. And uh, so as we're wrapping things up, Mark, you wrote a book and uh, uh, unjustifiable means that, that kind of tells the story uh, in a little bit more detail. And, and it's a fantastic book. We'll include the, the link in our, our show notes. But there was a lot of resistance to you writing that book and publishing that book, wasn't there? 
Yeah, there was. And, and you know, in the book changed uh, course, shifted course a few times uh, during its, its writing. I was debating whether to write the book and, and I, I was actually uh, attending an event for Human Rights First. I was, I was part of their National Security Professionals Program trying to get research funded and to try to get the torture report released and to try to help get the McCain-Feinstein Anti-Torture Act uh, passed, which which was. and But I, I was at an event and I met with uh, jo Senator John McCain uh, and Senator Dianne Feinstein. John McCain was on the Senate Armed Service Committee when the, uh, Senator Carl Levin had these hearings on uh, the detainees uh, and, and really, you know, first got out to the public about what was being done, the, seer, the, the abuses that were occurring. Uh, I was introduced to Senator McCain and still Mark's thinking about writing a book. And, and Senator McCain, who was one of my heroes, said, you know, I, I know your story. I know what you did. And you need to you need to write that book. You need to tell that story because we need more people like you who are willing to, you know, put your principles uh, ahead of things. And, and it's a lesson that needs to be need to be learned. And and I wrote it. I, I wanted to write it as a leadership book. Uh, I really wanted to write it about something that what is it like? to lead during crisis when you're under uh, an incredible amount of pressure and you have forces pulling in a lot of ways and when you have to tell truth to power take at the time for me was a very unpopular stance right who am i to say the secretary of defense can't do this stuff and things like that but it changed course because during the presidential campaigns back in 2016, uh, some of the Republican candidates were talking about uh, going back to these abuses. You know, uh, you know President Trump was saying you're going to, you know, put more people at Gitmo and these things work and other things. And and uh, Human Rights First had set me up with a few of the candidates and I was able to talk to them and convince a few of them that, you know, they, they, they didn't have the right information. That's really uh, it didn't work and, and things like that. And Trump was elected his campaign elected not to not to talk to me but a few others did and i was able to talk to the national security people and, and try to give them the inside baseball story but the, the book turned into more of a uh, an inside baseball because there, there were details that i thought people needed to know particularly people in positions like ours who you know we expect officers on the street uh, we expect Lance Corporals and Marine, uh, Lance Corporals, to make the right decision when they're under tremendous pressure, right, with rules of engagement and with policies and things like that. But but I think that what we, we fail to do is look at what I tried to do in the book is look at how do these policies impact the people that we're asking to do them. Uh, and so if you're asking someone to go in and do things that are unethical, that may be immoral, uh, that they may regret later, what's the moral injury on them? As leaders, we have a responsibility to those to look at us as their leader to ensure that our policies and practices and that the things that we're asking them to do don't have a lasting harm. You know, I know, and this is an unfortunate truth that I believe, that had I wanted to torture, I would have been able to. Had I elected to say that I need to do this to get this information, that they would have found a way to allow me to do it. Fortunately, 
I took the other side of that and and was able to to resist those efforts to the best of my ability. And I'm very proud of, uh, you know, I can look myself in the mirror and know that I did everything that I could to uphold, you know, the, the, the oath I took, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance to the Constitution of the United States, right? It's not loyalty to a boss. You know, I didn't pledge allegiance to Donald Rumsfeld. I didn't pledge allegiance to the Secretary of Defense. I took an oath of office that I had to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, both foreign and domestic. And, and that's the oath we all take. And, and that should be the the that should uh, be the underpinning of everything we do as leaders, uh, as those executing those, those orders. And, and I've told people who've worked for me before, your loyalty needs to be to the mission. You know, now hopefully I will be an example for you and I will hopefully uh, instill some of that uh, in you and, and, and you will look to me as a leader and, and I, you will be loyal to me. The primary loyalty ought to be uh, to the mission. And if I'm out of line of that, then you need to tell me you have an obligation to kind of put me back on the rails. Um, and, and so, so that the, the, the book, the book is leadership. But, you know, Mark, in law enforcement right now, there, there's big emphasis on duty to intervene. And the way that, that I view what you did and what you continue to do is duty to intervene at a national level, at a discipline level. And that, that takes tremendous courage, just like it does a, a, for an officer on the street to intervene when something's going uh, sideways. It takes tremendous courage, and I appreciate your courage. And and I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to Maria Hartwig, uh, who also happens to be one of the smartest people that, that I know. But but the work that, that she has done and that you and her continue to do, I think only enhances the quality of our investigations. It enhances the quality of our profession. And so I want to thank you for your service. I want to thank you for what you continue to do. I cannot recommend enough for our listeners to go and read the book, read the book. And, and there are those, and Mark, I know this is true. There are those that have questioned uh, your patriotism, your, your dedication to the United States, to the safety of America. And, and I will stand up right now and, and say that Mark Fallon is one of the most patriotic people that I have ever met. He is one of the most dedicated law enforcement professionals that I've ever met. And if you want to truly learn why I believe that, go and read the book. Educate yourself. Mark did the right thing at the right time for the right reason. And I want to thank you for that. Thanks for those kind words, Mike. Uh, deeply appreciate it. Uh, I was looking forward to this this conversation. And quite honestly, I could go on and on, but I can't thank Mark enough for his time and for all that he's done. But I hope that our listeners have enjoyed this. I hope it causes them to reconsider some of their deeply held beliefs, because perhaps there are better ways of doing things. You know, we, we talk about this podcast being a place for folks to tell stories and we hear lots of stories each week. But another thing that comes out of these stories is that recurring theme of training. We need to train, learn, get better, constantly you know, set our sights. How can we evolve in this law enforcement field? And uh, incredibly insightful information today. Again, we'll put links to uh, Unjustifiable Means in the show notes. Also, check out Mark's website, markfallon.us. Tons of information. You can get some more uh, background on Mark. 
just some incredible things to read through and uh, some fascinating stuff. And we'll put that right there in the uh, show notes section of uh, this episode. And you can find all that information on our website at Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. And I've got past episodes and ways for you guys to subscribe all right there at Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. <laughs>